At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. You know, in our world, there are certain elements that when combined can make quite the combustion. Some of those can be pretty entertaining, right? For instance, uh, maybe you remember back to elementary school and you mixed uh, at one point some baking soda with some vinegar. Anybody ever do that experiment? And you get the little volcano, it explodes, bubbles up, out, right? The combination creates a chemical reaction and it can be fun and entertaining. Sometimes the combination of certain chemicals, though, can actually be pretty deadly and destructive. I remember ever since I was a little kid, my mom would drill it into my head. Never mix ammonia and bleach. How many of you have heard that before, right? Why? Because it creates actually a deadly gas that can kill you. Two regular household chemicals put together can cause a deadly chemical reaction. I was actually reading a little bit this week, and I even heard that you shouldn't mix bleach with rubbing alcohol. Apparently, you shouldn't mix bleach with anything. Maybe that's the moral of the story. <laughs> but the reality is there are certain chemicals, when combined, that can create a deadly reaction. This isn't just true in the physical world. This also can be true in the human heart as well. There are certain elements that are embedded within each one of us that if we are not careful, when combined, can create destructive and deadly realities in our lives, especially relationally. So we've been in this series, Family, Why Bother?, where we've been looking at the first families in Genesis and kind of seeking to understand what is God's purpose for family and how do we navigate the challenges of family that we face in our lives. All of us have a family, come from a family, are engaged in some aspect of family, and oftentimes those bring challenges. And in this series, we've been seeking to understand some of those challenges, what's underneath those, so that we can continue to learn how to live better in relationship to the families that God has given us. And today, we're going to continue to look at another one of those stories of the first family. And I think through it, we're going to unpack some elements that we need to be aware of in how they combine in our hearts, what they can lead to, and ultimately then how we can live so that those things don't cause deadly destruction in our lives. So with that said, I'm going to jump into the text and we're just going to kind of unpack some things as we go. So again, we're in Genesis chapter 4. It begins, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So our story today is a continuation of the story we looked at last week, where God created Adam and Eve as the first human beings. He created a unique relationship for them. It says originally that God's creation was good. In fact, they were meant to be fully known and fully loved, but they turned from God's ways, sinned against him, and because of that, shame entered in the picture, and shame began to create division among humanity. And we talked about last week how every single relational problem that we experience in our family and our lives ultimately can be traced back to the sin and shame that is at the root of all human hearts. 
But then we saw that God, in response to that shame, promises to show grace and actually enact a plan in which he would cover our shame and deal with it, and he does that through Jesus. Now, chapter 4 then, though, is going to continue that story of those first human beings, but now in two of their children. And in many ways, this story kind of builds on the elements and themes that we saw last week, but kind of takes it into some, a deeper kind of place. And so my, my warning from the get-go is we're going to wade into some deep stuff here this morning. But I think it's really significant for how we understand our lives, our families, and our relationships. So Adam and Eve continue what God called them to do. He called them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They begin to do that. Adam knows his wife, right? And she conceives and born, we say Cain. The Hebrew name is Cain. It's the same, sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for acquired or gotten. And the reason she names that is she says, I've gotten a man with God's help. So God is also continuing in this story, helping move humanity forward. In fact, one commentator says that Yahweh shares in this moment in the activity that continues human life and our story. That's what Eve's statement points towards. So she has Cain. She also has a second son, Havel. We say Abel. Havel is also rooted in the Hebrew word for whisper or smoke or vapor. Some of you might remember that word from our studies in Ecclesiastes last summer. Vapor or smoke, which seems like an appropriate name for him because he kind of shows up in this one story and then we don't really hear from him again. So there's some foreshadowing even from the reality of his name. These two brothers work two different occupations. Cain is a worker of the ground. He's a farmer. Abel is a tender of the sheep and works with animals. And that gives us some context for what happens in the next part of the story. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. So they both bring an offering to the Lord, an act of worship before God, common in their ancient Near East culture. But notice God's response. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The Hebrew word for regard, or the the word regard that we translate there is rooted in the Hebrew word to look or to gaze at. The idea is Abel brings a sacrifice to God. God looks at it in favor and acceptance. Cain also brings a response to God. God looks away from it in disgust. Right? Our eyes tend to fix on what we like, and they turn to turn away from what we don't like. That's the idea here. God looks on favor on Abel's sacrifice and turns away from Cain. But why? What, what is the difference between the two offerings? Well, it's not necessarily that one is bringing vegetation or crops, that the other one is bringing meat. We see later in the Old Testament that both of these are acceptable offerings that are to be brought before God. The difference that the text seems to allude to is that the reason God regards Abel and not Cain is because Abel brings the best of his flock and in doing so reveals the reality of his heart. Notice again what it says. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. But what does Abel bring? Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. In the original language, those two words are combined. And they emphasize that he brought the first and the best of what he had. So the issue isn't that one brought sheep and the other brought food. The the idea or the issue is that one brings the best 
It reveals his love, his delight, his desire to bring God what is the best of what he has, while the other, Cain, merely goes through the duty or the motions. You might put it this way. One engages God in faith and delight. The other engages God out of obligation. In fact, a later biblical author makes this same point about the distinguishing reality of their two sacrifices. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, we see this reality brought to bear when the author says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The author makes it clear. Abel acts towards God out of faith, out of a desire and trust, and therefore brings his best, showing where his heart is at. Cain does not. Maybe you can think of it this way, right, to to kind of show the the distinguishing difference here. Imagine um, that it's your birthday, and you invite a bunch of people over to your house, some of your friends, to celebrate your birthday, and I'm invited too. Don't ask me why I'm invited to your birthday, but I am. I'm there, right? And it comes time for presents to celebrate your birthday. And we go around, and each of your friends gives you a present, and they're giving you gifts that correlate with who, what you love and who you are, right? I mean, these are awesome gifts. You're pumped about them. I don't know what that is for you, right? You can imagine that, but they're giving you these things. You're like, oh, this is great. I'm so excited. And it gets to me, and I'm like, hey, here, I got you a gift. And I throw you a plastic bag, and inside is a dollar bill and a half-used pack of gum. And you, like, give me that disgusted look. Like, what is this? I'm like, well, I got you a gift, right? Like, I, I did what I was supposed to do but what does my gift reveal? I have no interest in the relationship. I'm I'm merely doing it out of obligation. I gave no thought or consideration to you. That's the idea in the text. Cain comes to God, giving him a half pack of gum and a dollar bill. Well, I guess I got to bring you something. You didn't create me after all. And Abel comes bringing the best in delight, thinking through and offering to God the best of his flock. And what we recognize in that is what we give to God often shows something about where our hearts are at before God. Now, that's a whole different sermon for another day. But that's what we see in the text. But notice, so here's the offering. God has regard for one, not for the other. Notice what happens next, because this is where the text gets really interesting. Verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. What is Cain's reaction to God's disregard for his faithless offering? Well, the text says it's anger, but I actually think it's even more than that. The Hebrew word for anger is rooted in the word to burn or to burn in the nose, right? It's the idea of your face going hot. We would use that expression, right? When someone's mad, they go hot. But we also use that phrase to talk about when we're embarrassed, don't we? We turn red in the face when we're embarrassed. And the Hebrew word actually carries that same idea of grief, embarrassment, anguish that kind of lies underneath. We might use even the term depression. That might be an appropriate translation of this idea that's conveyed here. Because depression really is just anger turned inward, isn't it? Instead of going out, we turn in our on ourselves. Now, what's interesting 
about this word is that in, uh, and I'm just going to nerd out for one second, just hang with me, okay? In the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was produced by a group of Hebrew scholars prior to the time of Jesus. In the Septuagint, when they translated this word for anger, they did not translate it into the Greek word for anger. They translated it into the Greek word for deep sorrow or grief. So the idea here is not, this is how we think of this text. God disregards Abel. He gets angry at God, and therefore he goes and kills his brother. That's not what's happening. What happens is God disregards Abel and Abe, or Cain, and Cain turns inward on himself. He feels a deep sense of shame, a deep sense of his own brokenness emotionally, and he comes into anguish or depression or this deep sadness before God. That's why it says in the language, his face fell, right? There, there's a fallenness that now comes over him. In many ways, Cain is experiencing what we saw his parents experience in their sin. When they turned against God, they immediately noticed they were naked, they were embarrassed, and they went to hide, right? Remember we talked about it last week? Shame turns us inward. It focuses us on ourselves. That's where Cain goes. Cain goes inward, and his emotions all of a sudden turn and focuses on himself. This is the key point that I want you to understand as we unpack this, Right? That failure in faith is the front door to pride. Or here's another way I'd say it. Faithlessness towards God results in brokenness within us. When we act in faithlessness towards God, it shows the deep brokenness that lies within. And it causes an internal anguish. A combination of anger and sadness and grief and emotions. It's all the stuff we try to hide from, right? And anger might be the... the, the, the right expression in some ways, because anger oftentimes in our life and reality is our surface emotion. It's the thing that comes out that shows the struggle within. One, one of the guys I've learned a lot from Pete Scazzaro, who uh, run, wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, pastor in New York City, he, he talks about how when it comes to our emotions, it's often like an iceberg, that what you see in the surface, you catch a glimpse of, there's actually a lot more underneath and oftentimes in our life in reality, that's anger. For many of us, anger, or some of us it's sadness, those are usually the two, are a surface emotion. They present themselves externally, but they're actually revealing a greater turmoil that's happening underneath the surface. This sense of brokenness, lostness, anguish that we feel deep in our souls that we usually try to ignore, but sometimes we turn deep into. And that's what Cain's experiencing, this deep sense of anguish. Now, the reality is that each one of us experiences the same thing. All of us are born into sin. All of us have an anguish deep within our soul because of the deep brokenness that exists and our failure in living in right relationship and faith before God. We are like Cain in this regard. However, even as he does this, God comes up and recognizes in this moment, you have two different options or two different paths that you can walk in response to this reality. Look what God says to Cain in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? So God comes in and asks him a question. What's wrong? What's up, Cain? Why is there a problem? Now, here's one of the things I want you to notice in the text that is important. 
Who pursues who out of their emotional anguish? Does Cain pursue God? No. God pursues Cain. And I think that's an important point. We follow a God who pursues us even in our deepest emotional anguish. God comes to Cain. He asks the question to draw attention to what's going on. He continues. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, if you're reading in the ESV, you're going to note a little note that leads you to a a footnote at the bottom, which gives you the literal translation of that phrase, which is, will there not be a lifting up of your face? So God comes and he says, hey, if you do what's right, if you live in faith and righteousness, if you respond, even in this moment, to bringing what's acceptable and living in the way I've called you, what will happen? Well, joy will be restored. Joy comes with obedience. Joy comes with righteousness. If you do what is well, your face will not go down. It will go up. That's the nature of it. But, here's the warning, if you do not do well, if you continue in this path, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God's warning is, if you continue in this path, You don't turn in repentance. You don't turn back, right? Cain has the option here to say, you're right, God, I messed up. What is an acceptable sacrifice? Let me go back and get the best of my stuff and bring it to you. And God says, joy will be restored. But if you don't do that, if you continue in this place that you are, sin is ready. Sin is pictured like a predator ready to pounce, to capture you, to draw you deeper into sin, to lead you astray. The idea is that it will take control over you, lead you into more sin, But you have the option to rule over it. You have the option to respond in repentance towards God and not move in that direction. Remember, Adam and Eve had the same option to rule over the snake, and yet they gave into it. God's coming to Cain and saying, you now have that option as well. So be ready. How are you going to respond? Here's the point I want you to see. One, when pride enters the picture, it leads to more shame. Here's the deadly combination in the text. Shame plus pride is an open door to sin. When you combine those things, he has a deep shame and God warns him, if you stay in the place of pride in combination to that shame, what it will do is it will open a door to sin in your life. Pride mixed with shame causes massive destructions in our life and our relationship. Pride is when we hold on to ourselves and are unwilling to admit our brokenness before God and our sin. And because of that, we don't receive the joy that God actually has for us. C.S. Lewis helps paint a a helpful picture for this in his book, The Great Divorce, which is a tale of a group of people who get to go take a bus trip from hell to heaven. And it's a fascinating book. But he makes this point in one of his commentary, or one of his writings in the book. He says this. He says, Milton was right, said my teacher. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy. That is to reality. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. Because Cain cannot admit his wrong, he misses joy. He'd rather hold on to his self-righteousness. You should have accepted my sacrifice, God. 
you should be okay with me, then admit his own mistake. You see, that's the heart of pride. Pride causes us to miss joy. And pride, when combined with shame, leads to even worse consequences. All of us have the same option. Will we release our pride and turn back to God, or we will continue in the pride that we hold and the shame that we experience? Cain chooses the latter. Look what happens in the text in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right, so Cain responds in the path of sin. God gives him the morning. He keeps in pride. What happens? He kills his brother. We'll come back to that in a second. God comes and confronts Cain, and here's what I love. His pride just continues to show forth. Well, am I in charge of my brother? I mean, even one commentator notes that Cain overstates his responsibility towards his brother in order to deny completely what he had done. No man in the Old Testament is called to be his brother's keepers. He's heightening the language to try to deflect. He's still rooted in his pride so much that when God comes to confront him, who already knows what happened, Cain's like, it's not my problem. And God continues, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God notes that Abel's blood cries out for justice and vengeance out of Cain's unrighteous murder. And so because of that, God brings the curse against Cain. And his curse alludes back to the original curse that came to Adam in the working of the ground. Cain repeats his family's sin in his shame and pride. And because of that, experiences the continuing judgment of the curse upon him. And because of all of that, he experienced severe judgment and consequences before the Lord. But what we're reminded in God's cursing of Cain was that this was his choice that led to his judgment. Again, Lewis is helpful here where he reminds us in his book, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Pride mixed with shame always leads to sin, and that causes us to experience separation from God. That separation only increases in our lifetime until God gives us the ultimate choice, the separation eternally from him. We either turn in repentance or we go deeper into our pride and shame. And at some point, God says, fine, your will be done. Be separated from me forever. That's what hell is, to be separated from God for eternity. And what we see in Cain is that his continual path leads him to that point. His unwillingness to be humble and his continuous in his sin leads him to experience the ultimate consequence and judgment. And if we're not careful, we walk the same path. But it also does something else. And this is a key aspect since we're talking about family that I want you to see in the text. Pride not only destroys our relationship with God, pride kills our relationships. It kills our relationships. Again, go, go back for a moment and look at verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Why does Cain kill Abel? Have you ever asked that question? 
Like his issue isn't with his brother. His issue is with God. That's the whole problem. God doesn't have regard for his sacrifice. God warns him. The whole narrative up to this point doesn't have anything to do with Abel. It's all Cain and God. And yet Cain's outward action in the story is to go to his brother and take his life. Why? Because Cain knows that he can't come against God. He knows that he can't upset God from his throne, that he cannot come to the point of removing him from the position that God is in. So what is he going to do? If you can't attack God, what will you do? You'll attack the next best thing, the image of God in another. And when we're so rooted in our pride, pride is where we want to sit on God's throne. It's where we want to determine what's good and right. We saw that in Genesis 2 and 3. When we sit in that place and we can't remove God, then we'll attack his image in another. Shame and sin, sorry, shame and pride always leads us to sin against the one created in God's image. Or here's a way to think of it. Brokenness up with God, which leads to a brokenness within, moves us to destroy outward the relationships we have with other people. That's how it works. And the destruction we experience in relationship all comes back to our pride and shame, which is directly correlated to our relationship and struggle against God. And you might be sitting there thinking like, okay, maybe that's true for Cain, but but not like, I'm not going to go murder somebody. Like, that's not an issue. That's that's not my problem, right? So so what does this mean for me in my life, right? I'm I'm not like that. So let me for a moment draw your attention to Jesus's words. Because I actually think Jesus ups the ante on this story. And I never made this connection until this week. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to live lives of righteousness. He tells us in verse 20 of Matthew 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to show that ultimately the heart of God is not just obligation to the law, but it's actually the issue of the heart. That's where righteousness lies. But notice the first thing he calls out, the example. So I'm in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And what dawned on me this week as I was reading this, and and for some reason the Lord brought this to mind, I just realized, where else in the Bible do we deal with anger, brothers, altars, forgiveness? I'm like, oh, it's Genesis chapter 4. Like Jesus, in many ways, I think, is drawing on that story as he helps us recognize the reality of the righteousness that we're called to in relationship. And what Jesus wants us to realize is that our deep brokenness within, which results often in our anger without, right, surface emotion of the deep shame that we experience rooted in our pride, will lead us towards a path of dehumanization of the other that ultimately destroys our relationships. So you might say, I don't murder. What Jesus wants you to show is there's actually a path in every human heart that could get to that point, and we all engage it. Maybe you didn't get to the end, 
but you've probably engaged it somewhere along the way. So the first thing Jesus reminds us is, if he says, you said don't murder, I said don't be angry against the other. Why? Because anger is the first step towards the dehumanization of other. Anger, unrighteous anger, okay? Right? There is a righteous anger. That's a whole different sermon for another day. Unrighteous anger is what I'm talking about. Unrighteous anger happens when we seek to put ourselves in God's position and we determine what is just and right in the world. And when that doesn't happen, when we can't have that control, we get angry. You want the biggest, clearest example of this? When you drive your car. Nothing displays the pride of the human heart and our desire for self-autonomy and self-determination than the way you drive. Because you think, and I do too, put myself in that category, you think everyone should drive like you drive. If you drive slow, you think everyone else should drive slow. If you drive fast, you think everyone else should drive fast. And as soon as someone does not operate their vehicle in the way that you've determined they should operate, what happens in you? I mean, maybe, that, maybe that's just me. Am I the only one that feels that? Right? Somebody cuts you off and you're like, I'm going to run my car right into them. I hope I end you up in the ditch. Get out of my way. But what is that? What's that anger? I get to determine how the world should work. You don't act in my way. That exposes my shame. And therefore, anger results. Parents, when you get mad at your kids, does that say more about them or you? When I can't control my kids and I lash in anger, not control, discipline, anger, it's because I want to control. Anger is the way in the first step towards us in our pride looking at the other and saying, you're wrong, I'm right. But look at the second step that Jesus says. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So anger is our pride but then insult is the step in which we now move to dehumanize that person, to remove their dignity. That's the idea of insulting here. That they are less than what a human being should be. And when you use your words towards people in insult, this is what you do. Idiot, moron, jerk. What do you do when you communicate that to someone else? I'm right, you're wrong. I'm better, you're worse. I'm a human being, you're not. You're less than human. And oftentimes, the words we even use within our lives, relationships, and family systems tell one another what we actually believe about their humanity. And Jesus says, you move that place, you're just as guilty. You're still in the place of pride, and you're dehumanizing that person. You're removing their dignity as someone created in the image of God. And then Jesus says, finally, the person that says, you fool. And here's what we often think, like, you fool? What, is, fool? what does that mean? Now, remember, think biblically. The fool biblically in the Old Testament is someone who has moved completely outside of the way of God and therefore is deserving of judgment. Just read through the book of Proverbs to get that mentality. They live outside of God's design, and therefore they should incur God's judgment upon them. So when you move in a place in your heart, maybe your words, but also your heart, where you've put somebody in that category, you've removed their humanity. They're not deserving of blessing. They're not deserving of goodness. They're not deserving of what God provides. They're not even deserving of salvation. If anything, the only person that thing that person deserves is judgment from God, and I hope they get it. Now you can see if your heart gets to that point, 
murder's not that big of a step next. Once you've removed somebody's humanity to that level, that level, then you move to destruction. But what Jesus wants to see us to see is the whole spectrum is the problem. It's this whole movement out of our pride and shame that causes us to destroy relationships. Maybe it starts with anger. Maybe it starts with I'm better, they're worse. Maybe it starts with frustration out of my own worldview, not God's worldview. But then that moves to insults, and that moves to putting them down, and that moves to subtle jabs, and that moves to them being less than. And then at some point, that person becomes less than worthy of what God has to offer them in your eyes. And you've dehumanized to the point where that relationship gets destroyed. So do you see how shame and pride can lead to a path that ultimately destroys our relationships and the way in which we relate to one another? Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book, The Cry of the Soul, which I heartily recommend as a great understanding of emotion, remind us of this. Unrighteous anger always harbors the hatred of Cain. It kills to make someone pay for exposure and pain. I'm exposed in my shame. Therefore, you should be destroyed. That's the movement. And that's what Jesus warns us of. And what we see then is that when pride is mixed with shame and it leads to the dehumanization of another person and results in the sin against them and destroys the relationship, this is at the heart of the abuse that we experience in families. And this is where I just, just for a moment, let me lean in, right? All of us experience elements of family realities. Some of us, or I'm sorry, of family abuse. Some of us have experienced that in some massive ways, some less than. All of it, though, is traced back and rooted to the shame and pride in humanity that causes us to dehumanize one another. A father that hits his child has already taken a step towards dehumanizing that person in such a way that justifies their actions in their anger. That's what happens. That's where the root is. And and we could go through all the elements that we experience of abuse, physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, And some of those can be on a severe spectrum, maybe others less than, but they all have the same root. And because of that, they cause a deep woundedness in our hearts. They cause a deep woundedness in our lives. And the hard part is, many of us carry those wounds in a lot of ways, but don't fully understand why this would be the case. And what Genesis reminds us is, it's because of sin and shame and pride in the human heart that then reacts in ways towards the other. The story goes of a little boy one day who had a pretty bad temper. And so his father decided one day to give him a bag of nails and told him that every time he lost his temper, he had to go nail one of the nails into the fence in the yard. The first day, the boy had driven 37 nails into the fence. The next day, a little less. The next day, a little less. He started to learn a little bit that it was easier to hold his temper than to drive the nails into the fence. And finally, the day came when the boy didn't lose his temper at all. He told his father about it, 
And the father then suggested to the boy, now I want you to go out to that fence and I want you to pull out every single nail. And so the boy went out with his crowbar and pliers and pulled out the nails one by one. It took him days to get him out and work all the nails he had driven in. Finally, when he was done, the father took his son by his hand and led him to the fence. And the father looked at his son and says, you have done well, my son, but look at the holes in the fence. The fence will never be the same. When you say things in anger, they leave a scar just like this one. You can put a knife into a man and draw out, draw it out. It won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, the wound is still there. A verbal wound is just as bad as a physical one. And the story reminds us that when we operate out of our sin and a shame, we cause wounds in one another that are not so easily rectified. And many of us carry those wounds. Even I was reminded this week, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday, and the, it was from a Christian psychologist, and he was reminding us that oftentimes people who experience severe abuse in their families, what causes the deeper pain, although there's a deep pain to whatever that abuse might be, but what often leads to an even deeper pain is when that reality is unacknowledged, unengaged, or even demonized by those that should be in care of that person. Where does that come from? That deadly combination. If I haven't dealt with my shame and pride, how am I supposed to deal with that reality? How am I supposed to help you heal if I even figured out how to heal? And yet many of us, most of us, most people in our world are going around wounding one another, hurting one another. It might not be severe, right? It might not be murder, but it might still be ways that dehumanize, devalue, and remove people's dignity. And what Jesus says is, all that speaks to the same root problem. Every single one of us have a cane in us. That's the truth. All of us have that potential. All of us operate in that spectrum. And the question then, if we're actually to not experience the pain and reality or to experience restoration and healing in our families is to say, well, what do we do then? Are we just hopelessly lost and stuck in the pain and suffering that we experience on a spectrum of issues within our family, outside, within our relationship? And my answer to you is no. I think God in the text already provides for us the way in which we can experience both healing in our lives and healing in our relationships. So three things I want to close with. I know I've gone long. Just give me a second. This is some deep stuff. I want to help get us to a place of hope, not just leave you in a place of, wow, we're all a mess. So go back with me to Genesis 4 for a second. I want you to see the character of God first in this story. So Cain experiences God's cursing, and he responds, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. The nerve on this guy is amazing to me. You kill your brother, God brings a curse, and you're like, this is too much, God. What? What? Who do you think you are? But look how God responds. Right, so he says, you've driven me away. I'm a fugitive. Whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain's, vengeance shall be taken from him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled the land and not east of Eden. Notice what God does. Cain complains. God doesn't remove the consequence and curse that ultimately he brought himself upon. But Cain's fearful that what he's done is going to be returned to him by someone else. 
And God says, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to cover you in protection. If somebody attacks you, sevenfold upon them. And here we get another glimpse of the grace of God. Remember Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are out of their sin. They're naked and ashamed. What does God do? He kills an animal and covers their nakedness and shameness so that they can continue on and move forward ultimately towards God's ultimate plan for humanity. Cain kills his brother out of his own pride and shame, complains about it. He's not even repentant. And God still says, I'm going to give you some common grace. I'm still going to show you and give you the opportunity. I mean, he could have just said like on the spot, you're done, you're out. You don't get another anything. But he doesn't. Because our God is a God of grace. And that's the starting point of healing. Recognize God's grace. God is slow to anger, scripture says. He's not like us. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is kind towards his enemies. If God can show grace to a murderer like Cain, who cannot, who can he not show his grace towards? If there is a passage in scripture that gives you that should give you hope that God could be gracious even with your sin, it's the reality of how God responds to the most heinous of those that would destroy his creation. That's his character. That's why Romans 2 says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Start with his character. He is a God of grace. Even in your sin, he provides a way for you to come back in restoration. It's to move you to repentance, to turn out of your sin and come back to him. The choice that's given to Cain is the choice we're given as well to turn from our sin and repentance towards God because he's kind and gracious, merciful and loving. So we have to recognize that God is a God of grace. Start with his character. Then as you see that, recognize he's made a way for restoration. And the second thing that we can move towards to experience both healing within and our relationship with him and healing and, and that leads towards healing without is to humble yourself before God in repentance. It should not be lost on the fact that if Cain simply had repented, the destruction never would have happened. If he had been humble enough to turn from his pride, admit his wrong, and seek the restoration of God, the destruction and the deadly combination would not have taken place. The antidote to pride is humility. And humility is where we admit our sin. We admit our shame. And we turn back towards God for healing. And when that happens, what does God say? Your face will be lifted. James 4.10 would say it this way. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. When you're willing to make yourself low before God, he'll lift you up. He'll change your countenance. He'll begin the journey of restoration and healing. And the reminder of the gospel this morning is that God has already made a way for your sin to be atoned for and for your relationship to be restored. The author of Hebrews would put it this way. He would say, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember, in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel is pictured as the innocent one. 
He's the one who brings the righteous sacrifice by, uh, in faith before God. He doesn't do anything wrong in the story. He's, he's there, he's gone, but, but he's pictured as that, as the righteous and innocent one. Ultimately then, he's killed out of the destruction, out of the deadly combination of Cain's sin and pride. And in the story, his blood cries out for justice and vengeance. The destruction of human relationships that all of us continue, even to this day, and contribute to, calls out for God's justice. It calls out for judgment. It calls out for God to make it right. And to deal with the sin that we have brought in destroying God's creation. But Hebrews reminds us that there's another blood, a better blood that's been shed, and it speaks a better word. You see, Christ Jesus who would come, the only one who would be truly God and truly man, the only person who was truly righteous and truly innocent, was killed at the hands of sinful men. But the reality is his blood doesn't cry out for our judgment. His blood takes our judgment. That judgment's the destined for all sinners. That ultimate separation that should, we should experience before God, Jesus took for us on the cross. And now his blood doesn't cry out vengeance. It cries out forgiveness for the sinner. His blood cries out redemption. His blood provides a path for restoration in your relationship with God, that when you would put your faith in him, you would be covered, your shame covered, your sin atoned for, your relationship restored. And that's why we stand together and declare, even in the song, what can wash away our sins and what can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is not one thing that can restore the brokenness and fallenness of human beings that destroy relationships with one another, except the better word from the better blood, Jesus Christ. That's your hope. That's your focus. To humble yourselves before God is to receive his sacrifice on your behalf so you can be restored, so your shame can be covered, so your sin can be atoned for. And when that has taken place, as we humble ourselves before God, we then move to a place to humble ourselves before others. Go back and remind yourselves what Jesus says in Matthew 5, and this is where we'll, I'll end. I know, I've gone long enough. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. The path that brings healing in relationships starts with the humility before God, and then it starts with a path of humility towards others. I mean, think of Jesus, the only innocent righteous one, what was his posture towards everyone that he engaged with except the self-righteous? Humility. I mean, he made himself nothing in order to save us. So what becomes our path of the restoration in our relationships? It's humility. It's admitting our wrong before others. It's taking the step of putting ourselves in the lowest position, even in the relationships that are broken. Now, I recognize there are some relationships in this room that are damaged and dangerous and to the point where it might not be healthy for you to engage. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about relationships that you've experienced brokenness in that maybe you have not humbled yourself before in order to see restoration brought. And this isn't easy work, friends. I mean, I just had to do this like a month ago with my kids because God reminded me of like, I, I'm, I struggle with anger. I do. I'm like the hawk, the hulk, not the hawk, the hulk. Not because of my body, 
because I'm always angry. I have this like low burning personality that I try to stuff that too often gets leaked all over my family. And they experience grumpiness from me and discontentedness and lash outs and responses. And man, I just came to this point of about two months ago where I just recognized the deep brokenness and shame that place comes from. And I just had to like go to my kids and say like, you know, I'm sorry. I know I've driven some nails into you that will probably cause wounds that will take you a long time to heal from. I wish I could, that wasn't the case. But all I can tell you is Jesus can heal those. And so I'm sorry that I've hurt you. I'm sorry for the ways I've hurt my wife. But don't look to me, look to Jesus. He's your hope. And my hope is that somehow in humility, God would begin to paint paths of restoration. The greatest pain most people carried is that the people who wronged them never admitted that they wronged them. You and I have the opportunity to rectify that in those we've wronged, to put ourselves in a position and to allow healing to move forward. And that's why we remember this. While faithless pride ultimately destroys fallen families, faith in Christ restores relationships. If pride and shame form a deadly combination that destroys faith and humility, form an explosive combination that restores. It's like baking soda and vinegar. It might take some time and it might take some effort, but God can use a humility before him and a humility before others to bring restoration in the world. And I'll leave you with this question. What do you think our families would look like? Or our life groups? What do you think our church would look like or even the world that we exist in if we simply embraced a humility before God and others? I contend I think it would be nothing less than revolutionary. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.